The tendencies here reflect new academic fashions that seem to move in two opposite directions. Fields get larger and subject matter smaller. We have new fields of global studies or material culture, allied to object theory, which seem to cover everything, but they frequently serve as licenses to study very small things. Welcome to episode 16 of Sandwich Wingman. I'm Rob Hanna, here today with Ryan Morrison. How are you today, Ryan? I am as well as always, Rob, <laughs> which is to say, not bad. <laughs> yes, yes. Papi mal, pa, something like that in French. Papi um, mal. I don't know, maybe, but I'd like to hear you say that again. <laughs> I think it's papi mal, and I realize that's actually probably Haitian Creole. Yes, um, I think so. so. Not too bad. So uh, that reading I just did to start the episode was from a uh, an essay by Russell Jacoby. Um, That's not Jacoby? It, it might be Jacoby. It's hard to tell. Uh, his, his wiki page does not indicate a pronunciation. Whereas, on the other hand, Derek Jacoby. No, <laughs> Jacoby. Derek, Derek, it's Derek <laughs> Jacoby. Oh, Derek Jacoby. Yes. And Jacoby Ellsbury, the baseball player. Oh, correct. Right. And this is, we think, Russell Jacoby, and, uh, who wrote this nice piece called The Object as Subject. Uh, it was published in the, the, was the Chronicle of Higher Ed. And uh, it's, a, it's an essay that we can get to later in the episode, but that quote was about uh, kind of the, the new focus on objects um, as, 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 uh, as the subject of research. Mm. Uh, but today's episode is kind of special. Uh, episode uh, 16, we have decided to talk about other people's sandwiches and see how they've inspired us. Um, That's right. And uh, we were very lucky to be in the same place last week, uh, uh, back up in Boston, um, hometown for both of us, or at least greater Boston area. And we went to one of our favorite places, yeah. uh, the, pa- the Parish Cafe. Yeah, it's like a sandwich mecca. It is a sandwich mecca, and I think that... Um, what is what we both love about it is that the 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 menu is mostly comprised of um, sandwiches that are uh, the uh, creations of chefs around the city. So like, uh, and they'll say like, you know, here's the name of the sandwich, and here's the name of the chef who created it, and their restaurant, maybe their primary restaurant. Um, yeah, it's pretty exciting because then you're not just getting you know Paris sandwiches uh, per se, but you're actually getting a bunch of kind of a sampling of uh, different chefs' creations from around the city. So. We were excited to be there. The creme uh, de la creme. Yes. The creme fraiche de la creme. Delightful. Um, and, uh, yes, now, I, to the best of my knowledge, there was no creme fraiche in any of our sandwiches, but... Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah. There could have been. But there if they one, were... There was one that would have fit, but... I, I think that's right. I mean, in fact, we can get to that, probably. So, the we, we decided for this episode to actually go through uh, the sandwich in the order in which we ate them. Um, and as we kind of go through that, we'll, we'll describe them in a little bit of detail and uh, perhaps we'll speak a little bit to, um, you know, how they may have rated within our systems um, had we made them ourselves or what we would do to improve upon them. So l- let me, let me start with you, Ryan. Uh, and um, the first sandwich we had was the, the Lumiere. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, as you know, involved uh, sliced pork butt as the main ingredient. That's right. I uh, think I think we might have ordered it just so you could say that out loud. Yes, and, I, and right? I did. Mul- I did multiple times, and I also <laughs> knew I was in the mood for pork last week. So, 
Um, so, so from the menu itself, it says it's a th- thickly sliced, slow-roasted pork butt on a seeded bun with a lime and green curry tartar sauce. Yeah. Um, and it was served with a side uh, a salad of a which was ocean papaya. They said topped with peppered peanuts. But let's just stick with the sandwich for now. Topped um, with peppered peanuts. Yes. Like so what it. do you? No, yeah. What did you think of this pork butt Lumiere sandwich? I thought it was quite tasty. I thought the the meat was very uh, was done very well, prepared very well. Did you agree with that? I totally agree with that. In fact, yeah. I, I I remember kind of almost kind of melting, as they say, with that the kind of slow roasted meat could do that, just melting in your mouth. So yeah, we didn't have to delightful. fight with it. Exactly right. It was very easy eating. Um, yeah, and, we talked uh, we talked a little bit about, or we have on the past in in the past uh, on the podcast about like a roast beef. Exactly. You know the extent to which it, it affects an integrity score if you exactly have to like right. tear pieces of the of the sandwich off with your teeth. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was not not an issue here. No, it, very. And in fact, uh, it, I remember it being in a. I mean, the seated bun and everything all kind of worked. It was kind of hand sized. Um, yeah. Perfect. Perfect bread for this because it was a. It was a very. Uh, the the meat was very moist. Right. It was. Yes. A, dripping even and uh this this bun was a was a perfect bread choice for the for the sandwich right and it helped everything kind of stay together first of my knowledge i think that the the bun itself stayed intact the whole time right it, it never um right in and of itself you know did that but I, I will say the most interesting ingredient here and i think that you know may, um we could speak a little to it is kind of the the lime and green curry tartar sauce yeah i think that's the I think that's definitely the the main takeaway. I thought it was pretty good. It made a pretty big difference. I, I totally agree with that too, and I'm trying to think back to the specifics of it. But I totally remember not for one, for one hand not re- not realizing it was actually a green curry when I was tasting it. Right. Um, the, yeah, the curry was kind of under understated, and the the main flavor of the of the sandwich was definitely the the meat. But it was a nice compliment. Yeah, it was. In fact, there really wasn't. A, I don't know what went into the curry sauce itself, but the pork. You know, the uh, you know, it seemed like the pork, but itself was just kind of like maybe some seasoned pork. But there's probably a lot of flavors in the curry that we probably didn't even kind of. Yeah, you know, well, it was taste, it was so, definitely you know. a tartar sauce, just right. you know, with with some lime and, and curry flavor. Um, but I, I liked uh, I liked that combination, the curry and the lime. I like tartar sauce in general because I like mayonnaise, so. I think maybe the big surprise is that you liked the sauce because you do not like mayonnaise. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I didn't. To me, I actually was a huge fan of using that type of additive for this instead of say like a coleslaw, right? Which would be another typical side, right? So yeah, all right. Uh, but um, you know, maybe a, maybe a nice little little takeaway here for uh, fish, which we're postponing to next week. That's right. I could see a, a lime and green curry tartar sauce could be a oh, thing that sure. would work oh yeah that's actually a great idea yeah I like um it. yeah the uh you know this the sandwich uh was created by uh it's actually named after this guy's restaurant uh michael leviton who's the chef owner of the restaurant lumiere in newton mass so this was his little creation and uh uh you know i, I will say that, that it would have rated very highly um on pretty much almost every of the scale. I don't know how easy it was to assemble. Like, I don't know how easy it would be to consider a curry. Right. I'm assuming that would be a little bit challenging. But but broadly, I mean, it stayed together. 
thought the taste uh, was excellent. And also just the experience of it. Like it just, as you said, like it was so such easy eating. So, you know, yeah. overall, this would have been a sandwich very, you'd be um, proud to do. Yeah. It was, it was very homogenous. Yes. And, and, and the good ways we've talked about in the air before, right? That it all right. kind of, everything worked well together. No one flavor stuck out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, so overall, this, it this was, was very excellent. consistent yeah. bite to bite. Correct. Yeah. Totally. But I, so in terms of being able to, to kind of make this, bring it to work, it really all depends yes. on the meat, right? Because I don't, I don't think I could do this meat on my own. If you had it, I mean, this is a pretty easy thing to, to bring in, in pieces. You could totally right. Yeah, because you probably wouldn't want to pack it um, with everything kind of on the bun already, right? Because then the curry would kind of soak right into the bun and probably yeah. make it too soggy, right? Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, even the meat, I think, would would do some damage to the to the bread over some time. That's right. But, I mean, you know, if I've you been slow cooking. Yeah. yeah. If you had the meat, you could do this. It's just a question of can you do the, the meat well? Because if the meat were not as good, I don't know how good the sandwich would be. It probably would have been flat. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I mean, I've been slow cooking myself more recently for, you know, we have here for for meals. Um, but I don't, I don't know whether how I whether I could cook pork butt well. But yeah. the the great the great thing about slow cooker is that you kind of put the meat in with the seasoning and and maybe some sort of sauce and it just kind of does the work. Yeah. So um, so if, if it was part of a larger kind of week's worth of pork butt meals, that. <laughs> Um, then maybe then maybe you could take a couple scoops into work and put it onto a seeded bun, yeah, and mix it up with some tartar sauce. <laughs> All right. Well, the the other I think big takeaway I'm going to take from from this sandwich mm-hmm. is um, really that consistency, bite to bite. I think you know you and I are doing our own things. Uh, that's something that we have focused less on, right? So our you know, you have one bite, and I don't know. You're just getting different different flavors. It's That's like right. eating eating. Ours are more like eating salads. You know what I mean? It's just um, I don't know. That maybe this is the big big difference between like a a pro sandwich and an amateur sandwich. Is the the homogeneousness? The, ho- the homogeneity. Yeah, that's probably more of a word. <laughs> but no, but but to that, uh, I mean, it probably is more of a word. Uh, to that point, <laughs> um, um, there's a difference between that type of sandwich and the sandwich where you've layered everything, right? So this was, you know, I, I, I get a sandwich kind of like this, um, kind of a pulled pork type sandwich, you know, regularly from a, a local sandwich shop here where, where I live in, in D.C. Um and I have the same exact experience of it, right? Where like most sandwiches, you kind of have the, like you know the layer of meat and you know maybe cheese or like you know lettuce, tomato. But this is a sandwich you literally kind of just scoop the meat in, and you probably you know you mix in the 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 tartar sauce type thing all into kind of one ball, and you kind of just kind of scrunch it. So I mean, in some sense, the homogeneity comes from the fact that you've actually literally mixed all the ingredients together and just kind of scooped it on, as it were. Um, yeah. So, but a lot of the sandwiches we think of as sandwiches are like, oh, put the meat, put the cheese, put the spread. Um, so when you eat it, you're actually, you know, you're, you're getting a bunch of different flavors in, in, in layers. I mean, it's just, it's almost by design. That's all I was trying to say. Yeah. But then like, um, is bite one similar to bite yeah. two? No, no, yeah. And I get, that's a different point. I agree. Yeah. Right. Like you're, the, the consistent experience across the whole thing. Right. And so, right. That's um, right. that's, that's more my 
That's more what I was thinking about. Right. And I think that's right, because I don't think we thought a lot about that. And I think that a lot of the it's sandwich, when you kind do. of like, yeah, yeah, when you sprinkle stuff across the sandwich, sometimes you get more of the avocado, or you get more of the other flavor. But this is, I agree, like, there was not a bite that just didn't kind of taste similar in a good way to the other bites. So. Well, I mean, the other thing, um, if if we were to make this more of a priority, and I don't know if it, if that, if it is a priority or not, but um, it affects ingredient choices as well because there are some ingredients that are just too different but also big right to include and still kind of have this this effect going on so you think of um you and i both had pomegranate seeds at one point that's right in sandwiches and that's good i mean it's a very different flavor it's very bright flavor unmistakable you knew when you got there but the seeds are so small that you know I don't know. It still was kind of consistent bite to bite. Uh, whereas if pomegranate seeds were like the size of grapes or something, that would not work as well. Maybe. I, I totally agree. Yep. So. So anyway. so so here maybe the the size of the object matters, which might lead us into talks later. Yeah. So um, kind of moving on to the next one. A sandwich that was. Uh, Kind of very different uh, yep. in that regard. We got a Mexican meatball sandwich. And it was created by Brian Poe at the Rattlesnake Bar and Grill. Yeah. Which is like almost across the street from the Parish Cafe. That's exactly right. No, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so cilantro infused Mexican meatballs on a toasted baguette with melted pepper jack cheese, sliced red onions romaine and tomatoes but maybe the thing that stuck out the most to us the most yes. memorable thing about it is that it was served with a chipotle and jalapeno au jus That's yeah the, that, so you know you were invited basically to dip yes it was like a meatball dip sandwich yeah like a roast beef you know thing oh right yes yes so so what, what did you think of this one well, I was going to ask you that. Okay. Well, well let me tell you this. I, 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 I distinctly remember how much I uh, enjoyed the the dip flavor, but I realized that that it, that it was actually very strong on the heat dip. So, yeah. If, if you dip too much in, I think you would dip to uh, pour a whole bunch on yours, right? Um, yeah. You know, so it, you could dip. So you could double dip. Right, so I got a lot of the jalapeno flavor, and it actually was a very interesting combination with the with the meatballs, which themselves are just really excellent tasting meat, just like the pulled pork we had. So that that itself, it's hard to speak to because I don't know how they necessarily made them, but they were also infused with uh, cilantro. It says right, um, but I remember the dip distinctly. It since it was on a big kind of crusty um, bun. And we just a toasted baguette, right? And then you just kind yeah. of kept dipping it, and every every bit of flavor kind of had that kind of little kick of that. Uh, it would have probably tasted great just on its own as a meatball sub, as it were. But actually, with the addition yeah. of the of the au jus, that was excellent. So, um, so my takeaway is that we've never done that for our sandwiches before, which is have like a separate side. Um, hmm. You know, so you know it might be something to inspire us to try. Hmm. Good point. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a good fit for the thing I liked least about this sandwich was the was the baguette. You think so? I, Why I had well, I had to fight with the baguette. I don't know. 
it was oh, very okay. big. It, I remember being a very, very big sandwich. Yeah. Like you really couldn't fit it all in your mouth. I think I think that would be my you know my issue with it. But the, the flavors of it were great, and the integrity actually was quite good. It's just that the the baguette was huge. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that's uh, maybe that is the lesson is the the oju and the idea that I don't either we haven't considered or or we have we just haven't used it. This idea that the the sandwich can be more than just the sandwich, I guess. Doesn't have to all be in the, uh-huh. in the in the bread when you sit down to eat. Well, yes, well said. I agree with that, right? Like the the French dip sandwich is just as much about the dip as it's about the sandwich. So, mm. um, and it's interesting because it really it really does kind of break down some of the boundaries, right? Yeah. Um, so it was a little, a little spicy for me. Yeah, for me too. But to actually. I actually it wasn't too spicy for me. I just think that it was quite spicy, and I thought that was an interesting way of adding spice. It's also an interesting way if we talked about with the ketchup episode, which like you, or in the ketchup article by um, by Gladwell, how like you can add as much or as little as you want, um, right. to, depending right. on what, what kind of flavor you want. So it kind of personalize the experience of the sandwich. So you had a ton that you kind of uh, poured on, and I kind of dipped it over mm-hmm. time, and you yeah. So yeah, it was different. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. the pepper jack cheese was pretty hot as well, I think. Oh, yeah. But, but I would say overall, all the flavors work very well together. But I will say that in this case, uh, because of the heat coming in from the jalapeno au jus, that it wasn't quite as homogenous, right? Some 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 bites were much stronger than others, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's also a side effect of any of the... I think that's been true of any meatball sandwich that I've had, too. Right. Yep. So, um, let me ask you then, is this something that you think you could recreate as a bring-to-work sandwich? Um, again, this is interesting. The, the value add of like these restaurants and the chefs making these is that they, they really treat the meat really well. Like, I, I'm not sure how, whether I would right. could feasibly like recreate a Mexican meatball that, that would meet this. You know, could I make a meatball sub that, that had kind of a jalapeno sauce? Perhaps. Um, so this would be harder, I think. To, to, to I like when you ask yourself questions. It's a, it enhances the experience for me. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah. Do you think you could recreate this sandwich? I don't think so, no. I, I don't know how I would do any meatball sandwich as a bring-to-work sandwich. Right. I don't... You know, I just don't know. I Because uh, I didn't like the baguette, and I didn't... I mean, you can't just put it on a bun. Put them on a bun. Yeah, that's right. They're balls. They roll and they're thick. Well, you could. Couldn't you imagine if you had your own? Um... You slice them in half. Well, yeah, but also the the no 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 the um the not tissue paper but the type of paper you would use wax paper. You could wax paper wrap the whole thing and then take it with you, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it's just uh, always going to be hard to fit uh, a meatball sandwich in one's mouth. True. Truth. But, nice experiment. So, I liked it. I liked trying it. Me too. I'm very happy about it. In fact, I I, uh, I, I enjoyed that actually just as much as I enjoyed the other sandwich too. It's just that it was, uh, it was just a, a slightly different type of experience there, right? Just yeah. the actual eating of it. So, um, so uh, 
we had one more sandwich that also it's interesting segue here because this one also had a sauce that you kind of could could take as much or as little as you wanted to right. uh, to add to your bites. Uh, I know this is a sandwich that you like a lot. This is the the Zuni roll. That's right. Um, this was created by Norma Gillespie or Gillespie. Uh, it was a smoked turkey breast uh, sandwich with crisp bacon, chopped scallions, dill Havarti cheese, and cranberry chipotle sauce wrapped in a warm flour tortilla with a side of cranberry chipotle sauce and sour cream and scallions. Served with potato salad or coleslaw. I forget what we had. Do we have maybe the, the coleslaw? I don't remember. But the um, but I will say this one. Um, I recall that there were we were served two of these, right? Or at least like there was a, it was sliced, right? And there were kind of two larger like kind of tortilla type wraps. Um, yeah. One of them one of them seemed to have a lot more bacon than the other one. Uh, yeah. I recall succinctly. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think it might have just been, you know, they they cut those things at a, at a severe angle. That's right. Super and, severe. Uh, yeah. I think um, maybe the bacon was just more on one one side than the other. Yeah. Of the of the roll. I I absolutely love this sandwich. I thought this was incredibly tasty and flavorful. And I absolutely love the cranberry chipotle sauce. And just kept wanting to dip and have more and more and more of that. Did, did, do you feel similarly about this? Oh, yeah. I think I've gotten that sandwich maybe close to every time I've been there. Because, yeah. I mean, I want to try more things, but it's just so good. Yeah. I'm just saying. It's not this... like a like a, like a Thanksgiving like gobbler sandwich. Exactly. It's not. Um, the turkey is, you know, sliced turkey. It's not, um, you know, it's cold cuts. Yes. Um, yep. Oh, that's but, right. Good point. You're right. It wasn't. You're right. It was not like the type of turkey you would like have as leftovers. Good point. It was a different right. consistency. Yep. Right. So. Um, I, I I dig the the scallion flavor of it. Um, bacon never hurts anything, and uh, Vardy cheese works really well. But it's the cranberry that probably puts it over the top, right? Yeah, I mean the the, the sauce is phenomenal. The the sauce is like a ten out of ten itself for taste. Yeah, um, and actually, I mean, if you, I'm I'm just thinking now of this cranberry chipotle sauce and how it how it compares to ketchup. Oh yes, well said. Yeah, what do you think? I I mean, it's definitely sweeter. But you still maybe get a little bit of that sour flavor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Might might still check all of the boxes. It might, and yet, right? Because and yet, the, and yet yep. it's different. Well, I will say that it definitely tasted. You could taste the sweetness. The sweetness yeah. was not was not balanced in the way that a ketchup is, right? Right, right. And yet, I, I mean, I still think of ketchup as leaning in the. In the vinegar direction. That's right. Yep. Yep. This was also not leaning that way either. Yeah. Yeah. It was just leaning in a different direction, maybe. Correct. Correct. I don't know. Maybe this is uh, something that can be used in many more contexts. I mean, it fits the turkey. We're just used to that combination, I think. Yep. Um, It did fit the turkey. I did like how the the scallions kind of tasted with it. But I wonder if this... uh, Cranberry chipotle sauce is something that can be applied in like many, many more contexts. Right. To be continued. 
Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and to, to the question we've been asking a bunch of times here, which is whether or not we could bring this to work or like make this to be brought to work. Right. Um, all of the the ingredients of of the wrap itself, right? I mean, the the, the turkey breast, the bacon, the scallions, and stuff. I mean, you could just put that together on your own. Um, it, it really was quite a flavorful smoked turkey, so I'm, I'm sure it was a nice choice cut of, of some stuff. But um, yeah, you probably could do some like this, right? Yeah, if, if if you were able to purchase this type of sauce in like a jar or something, then you really could do this. Um, yeah. Interesting. And again, you could bring the sauce separately, or you could slab. You could have it, you know, be a spread already on the sandwich, and just take it in with you. And then you know, you, you you could reheat it at work because this was warm, and I remember the warmness was. It uh, was yeah. I mean, that's yeah. part of part of what we probably couldn't do, unless maybe you had like a toaster oven available. Right. So oh these, yeah, it was these crispy. Were like flour, yes. flour tortillas, yes. but yeah, they were um, they were hardened a little bit. That's right. As well as hot, and you know, not not quite that. You know, not quite uh, crispy to the point of, of breaking, but still, you know, crispy to the point of having its own texture, whereas otherwise, you know, a tortilla and, like, sliced um, turkey and, and cheese, it tends to have the same same texture. Yes, yes. So, yeah. Interesting. And I absolutely love that, that aspect, the crispiness of the... Yeah, it made, it did make yeah. a difference, especially oh, yeah. that. So, uh, you know, we said uh, it was cut at a at a severe angle. That's right. Um, that's probably not even painting the full picture. I mean, that the length. I don't know. The cuts were longer than the part that wasn't cut. Right. That, there was that's like right. there was like an yep. inch and a half for each each uh, slice, each side. Right. That was not cross cut in some way. Yes, and uh, the angle was very, very severe angle. So, so yeah. that uh, that helped. But it also would help the integrity, having the uh, the crispiness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, and it was kind of like a like a high lie scoop. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yes, was, exactly right. Long, but... Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. <laughs> I don't know about that. You're too generous. Uh, Not as uh, generous as I was with that cranberry chipotle sauce. But. Well, all I'll say is, uh, is, is papi mal. N- not too bad. <laughs> Peppered peanuts. <laughs> yeah. So, um, overall, the parish experience. Wonderful, as usual. Recommended. Um, recommended, yep. And uh, we, could, we could go again and have more sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah, Three, I look forward times. to that. Just just as an opportunity, just to just to hang and eat and and critique. But you know, speaking of and then maybe also yes, do some yeah. things that we're good at. <laughs> That's tough. So, but I will say this: I'm gonna I'm gonna use this as the segue here, um, which is um, so you know we we here were the critics, but we turned to someone uh, uh, as we we're saying before, uh, Jacoby. Uh, Russell Jacoby, who has been quite critical uh, of a uh, uh, what seems to be kind of a new field of study of, of uh, focusing in on objects, and yes. um, I, I myself found this fascinating because it seems like to me I would I would really enjoy like like 
you know, I, I would enjoy reading any of these types of studies, like, you know, studies of golf balls, or he's joking, like, nail clippers or refrigerator magnets. Like, I actually would find that to be fascinating. Um, but his larger question is about whether or not it's, like, you know, like, where is it situated in in the academic world right you know like as you were saying you know we were talking right before the call about like um you know why you know professors or others might have been drawn to this right and and he even says in this article the appeal of these studies is evident um theory fatigue has struck the professorial class especially english department inhabitants yeah, I, uh, and, I totally get that too. Yes, exactly right. And it says, "Do we need another quote unquote reading of Pride and Prejudice? Better to take up Jane Austen's wooden desk." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think um, I get the appetite for these kinds of studies. Yes, I think it's interesting. I think uh, you know, when I was a kid, I'd always wonder, uh, like, where this particular thing I was holding or seeing, like, had been, things like that. This doesn't exactly. really get to that. Right. level of detail but it's um you know on the same kind of channel of of curiosity and uh i don't know where i don't know i don't know where this is going but he refers to um mr jacoby refers to a uh a series that treats objects in like like three to five pages oh yes yes, yes. um and that that seems about right appetite wise Ah, um, yes. But, uh, you know, what this this article sets on specifically, uh, to the extent that it is a, a critique, it's more a critique of this new uh, objects series of books. Exactly right. That are yeah. about 100 pages long. Like, I don't know, I think, I think this sounds interesting, I don't know how many of these 100 page things I could read end to end. What do you think? I, I also feel similarly that I would prefer something more twenty pages. Yeah, yeah, something that is one sitting. Yeah, exactly right. Just like short you used to story. Remember, yeah, short story like one sitting. Well said. Yes. Yeah, I mean I would prefer that, but you know you could see the appeal of writing a longer text because you probably have to do a lot of research. That's I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Um... And this is tougher since neither neither one of us actually read any of these things, right? Uh, but right. where, how would you do this research? So that so we, the this article that we read leads off with a couple of the tidbits from a a book about golf balls, right? And how many people had had died, had been killed by golf balls, and the most common way that someone died from golf balls like right. how do you do that research <laughs> no really i mean because i right I do, right i do uh, well you and i both do you know data driven studies uh you know you professionally me much much less than professionally uh but um i'm gonna guess that it's similar for you i kind of know where my data sources are yep and there are there are many and they do a lot of different things. That's right. It's a pretty expansive tool belt, but there isn't a lot I can do beyond that tool belt. That's exactly right, without a doubt. I feel similarly, and it's a good point. And, and you know, how would you find this weird research about people dying from golf balls, right? Yeah, where, do you, where, where would you ever look that up? 
And, I, you know, I don't know about you, but the, the baseball stuff I do, sometimes you do a lot of work for a very small payoff of, like, two sentences. Exactly right. And um, if this book is, like, all all that, and if, if the work to find out how many people died by being hit by golf balls and the most popular way, you know, the most common way that... Uh, yeah, popular was definitely the wrong word. Um, that would take much longer than some of the things that I'm thinking of. Uh, right. So, so would you have to invest a right? And and the so I don't have a good answer then that that how you would figure out whether or not it's even worth the time unless unless you had a lot of time to just meander is the word. Like you know, like 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 follow a hunch. Like like maybe this maybe this data is going to be in this source. Like maybe you go to like yeah, yeah, yeah. death records, and you're like, well, I'm going to probably discover a lot of things that have nothing to do with golf balls here. But if I kind of walk through these records, if I could find by a bunch of people killed by golf balls, then that would give me this nugget. Yeah, I um, wow, I really you know I really just don't know. There's, I mean, if there's no one database in which you can do a search, then just adding all this up through through separate reports, yeah, sounds killer. I, if we were writing something like this, I imagine, or I imagine that these have a have a kind of a big history component, like the history of the object. Exactly right, without how, a doubt. Yep. The development of the object. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah. Um, and that that I get. Uh, you know, it is. That is history. It's just writing history. Uh, but you know how how things are used, um, and a lot of the kind of the fact fact driven analysis there. Uh, I think it would just be difficult. I don't know. Right, because some of it's like is is it does it touch upon an anthropology, right? Where it's like an ethnography mm-hmm. of how mm-hmm. people use golf balls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, where do you? Where do you draw the line? Who writes about that? Do you like go to Golf Magazine and like kind of make inferences from other people's you know quote unquote ethnographies, <laughs> um, like personal narratives that they write in there? And it's like, oh, a lot of people talk about this being the way they experience this um, object. Um, yeah. Well, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the greater question and the one that you that you started with, and then you, you kind of quote it again. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, kind of thing? theory thing study mm-hmm. um, is it kind of like a intersection of literary study and anthropology because I, I can see the attraction of um, well I I can see the fatigue the theory fatigue I, yes. I get that I've yep. seen that before and I have frequently wondered how people could devote a life you know to Spending more brain power on like a, a work of literature than the author had spent on it, right? I, I just don't see what the return is. Hmm. Um, That's an interesting point. And and I, well, I just don't see what the return is. And and this is from someone who has really appreciated having some kind of literary um, uh, literary theory. Help kind of deconstruct some 
you know, the different perspectives on, on works that we've read. and Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the more powerful specific ones was, uh, you know, you remember us talking about uh, reader response theory in Slaughterhouse-Five. Yes. yes, exactly. Yes, yes. I mean, that was that was pleasing. I, I like that. And there are there are plenty of things like that. And um, But so at some point, you're just spinning your wheels. And, and the reason why it's acceptable is more the, the process of becoming an academic and staying an academic than it is about the subject necessarily being given to it. Right. Um, but I... So I, I get the theory fatigue. Um, you know, what does something mean? But there's so much that's artificial about literature. And the good thing about objects, especially if someone thought it was a good idea to make them, and then they are bought and sold, you know, to to any extent really, means that the, some people think there's some utility to it. There's a reason for it. Exactly. Maybe it's not the most elegant design possible, and yet that any time there's that difference, there's some kind of separation between the, the most elegant possible version of an object and the version that gets bought and sold. That's interesting to me. Why is that? Is it, is it something psychological? Is it, is it, is it that... Um, the most elegant thing is, is too similar to something else that we don't like or that we learn to not like? Do we just like new versions of things? You know, all of those questions. Right. That's interesting to me. That involves, like, real people. It is a lot closer to anthropology. I like how you put that. Well, that, that, I mean, it, the question it raises in my mind, too, is why is this actually situated in literary studies? Like, why is this not in... Or, 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 or it, it has the space not already been explored by anthropologists, or rather, I mean, like, are people, are, you know, is this really a new thing theory, or is this just uh, literary scholars, you know, moving into an academic space, right, that may have already had some people occupying it? Because I could imagine any kind of number of things mm -hmm. about, like, you know, an anthropology of, uh, surrounding arrowheads or something right like it's just like how how these old objects were used it's probably been around for a long time i mean maybe that touched on archaeology but um it, it, i wonder what how, how new this is in in, in um for some objects because i mean uh, people have written histories of objects people have written yeah uh, you know people have have, have 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 written in really anthropologies about how these objects were used in certain cultures and it's kind of it's valued um, in, in academia to kind of have someone write a, a really thorough history of something to say, right. you know, that we really, really believe that this, that bowls that were made like this were used in this way. And we know because of this reason, you know, or like you know, this evidence or where, where it was located in the world where we found it. Um, you know, it, sorry, you know, it just makes me wonder whether or not, you know, yeah, just like I had said, like whether or not literary theory is just is just a is just a new actor in this space that's already been kind of trod um, before. Maybe, maybe I, I think. Um, I mean, anthropology is still a pretty young field. Sure. Um, you know, I think still a little bit less than a hundred years old, and and even even saying that is uh, um, misleading a little bit because then we're talking about just a just a few academic departments for a long time and then that's right then there's kind of the tipping point where you might have an anthropology 
department at like most schools instead of few schools. Yep. Um, I, I think I think you're onto something that there are there are tools. I mean, it's really a cultural anthropology question. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. I think that there are tools there that help, but it's mostly about behavior. Rather, I mean, are objects behavior? Is I mean, maybe maybe the answer is yes. Maybe the answer is yes, and yet people have not acted like the answer is yes. Right. Um, but I kind of wonder if, if, you know, all these uh, literature folks have basically developed tools over a long period of time like hyper develop these tools. Right. And the tools actually might be more appropriate. They might fit better this kind of object study than they do the literature. Sure. Cuz you're cuz in literature you're trying to guess really. You're trying to guess what the what the author was doing mm-hmm. with with something that becomes fixed, the the book. Right, um, and then you know the book is kind of an intangible object, uh, right. but it is kind of an object, and you're trying to guess what the author was doing, and then this is the the part where the the theory fatigue comes in. You're trying to explain what the author was doing and why, even if the author didn't appreciate what they were doing and why. Exactly, um, and that kind of stuff. I don't know how much usefulness there is in the world of literature to trying to show that an author was doing things unintentionally but those that those are the questions when it comes to objects like what what is that separation between um, things that are needed or things that are exactly what they need to be and things that are used and duplicated and yet don't aren't exactly what they need to be right and and that's that's not uh that's not making things up that's not a fool's errand like the the objects are bought and sold that's that's all you need to know to know that there's something important about them um yeah i i, I that's uh, this is really interesting that's that's really kind of funny because this is not the first time I've been thinking about whether, you know, some folks in this field or the field in general, especially especially with this um, this impetus towards just getting much more and more specific. Uh, kind of wondered if that's just gone in a direction that it shouldn't go. Um, and here we are with uh, maybe a, a new field. We're like this is oh, you can come here. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't know. What do you think? Um, should would you like yeah. this to? Would you like to see more of this? Would you I, like to see academic departments that just study objects in this way? Yeah. 
I think so, but I think it, what I think it speaks to a larger. Well, first of all, I would find it interesting to read about this in the same way you're talking about, which is that like maybe there is a certain um, length or medium in which I'd want these presented to me. You know, right. so you've done a lot of the work, but I read it in like a three or four page short essay, right? Right. And the, and the question is, it seems to raise a larger question about whether or not academic fields could move in that direction and still be considered rigorous, right? So, like, because mm. you, 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 you hear about these, like, surveys of people where, like, even people within, you know, let's say, like, the field of economics, no one really reads, like, the full paper of other people. Like, there's a certain way we consume each other's work, but the field mm. hasn't evolved in such a way to produce the type of product uh, that is kind of fully consumable. Like there's something valued in the field about having a like larger academic text mm-hmm. from um, mm-hmm. like there, you know, that has all of the bells and whistles in it. Like, you know, all the, the, the methodology and, and all the rigor behind it. And you read yes. it kind of, you never read it front to back uh, because you've got to pick it out in a different way. And yet we've never kind of recreated that, that format. Right. So maybe it's okay to have this field that's kind of a hybrid of history and cultural studies and anthropology and stuff like that. Um, but maybe they don't necessarily have to always create like dissertation level texts about them. Like, um, like maybe yeah. the field could be a value, but produce something more bite-sized. Yeah. I, I think the output, um, I think the output matters a lot. Uh, this is to the extent that this is a field, it's right. a it's kind of a consumer driven field, which I did not mean as a joke, but right, you know what I mean. It's about the what is the what is the end product, and is there a role for that to play? Exactly right. But in terms of like whether this becomes an academic field, uh, if this is more of a thing, then it makes sense to have people working on what those appropriate methodologies are. And kind of setting standards that way. There, there might even be like you know ethical implications, um, kind of like there are in, in psychology, right? Um, and like psychology and, and cultural anthropology, maybe there would always be um, the struggle with acceptance in terms of its scientific rigor. Maybe it's just yet another social science in that regard. I mean, you, your your expertise in one social science is uh, that's the one that is, you know, among the more rigorous of social sciences, mm-hmm. in having data to offer. Um, right. But yeah, maybe this is uh, maybe this is a new field. And, and, and a new field that, that could be valuable. You know, I mean, a, a new valuable field, a new yeah, and not just know. and not just interesting, but I mean, we have uh, so we so we did the 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 ketchup episode, right? Or the the you know the Gladwell piece, and learned about how all these foods are really designed in a lab, and they 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 taste good, they taste fulfilling because of they they've done so much work to try to master this balance, right? Um, Maybe that's about food, um, right? But about objects too. I mean, obviously there are there are people in companies that make objects 
whose job it is to do the best they can in creating those objects. And, yes. and the ones that are about utility, right. maybe like golf balls, it's just about having a thing that does its job as, as well as possible. But there are, to the extent it, it, it turns into design, like this article uh, talks about, you know, or he, he shares a description of a doorknob to help make a point. Right. Um, what is it about that that is attractive? There are people who study what to sell. Yes. So there's, um, I don't know, there's a there's kind of like a GDP-driven um, need maybe to make, make it, make, turn this into something more formal. Yeah. Maybe that's, I think that's a good point. I don't know. Well, I, I, I will say that this work has been, uh, when I first picked up this essay uh, and, 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 uh, and started to read it, I just immediately thought this was something that, that was meant to be um, inspired, or sorry, meant to be uh, spoken of, uh, or discussed on an episode. So I think there's, yeah, it, it, it was, was definitely, yeah. I was skeptical, to be honest, but this but it was, was uh, yeah. you know, opened my eyes a little bit. Well, I'm glad. Um, it, it, well, made, it made for a very worthwhile episode 16. Um, so um, I think we, we could fairly say that our next ingredient will be fish. Yeah, so, so we can only defer a fish so long. Yes. So um, so, so till next time. Thanks, All Ryan. Right. Okay, take care.